Stay hungry, stay foolish. Steve Jobs famously said, I'd rather be a pirate than join the Navy. On this show, we will discuss exactly what Steve Jobs meant by this. Pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirates didn't just challenge the status quo, they changed everything. Pirates faced a self-interested establishment, a broken system, industry-scale disruption, and an uncertain future. Sound familiar? Today's guest is an award-winning social entrepreneur, co-founder and former CEO of Liberty, the youth-led creative network working with the likes of Facebook and Google to help young people change the world. We welcome Sam Conniff Allende. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you very much indeed. Hello, Aidan. Hello, everyone. It's great to have you on the show, man. And, uh, you know, I've asked many people when I was reading the book, I asked them, what do you think straight away when you think of a pirate? And as you'd guess, they think of the negative traits of a pirate. And you talk about control-alt-delete, delete what you know about pirates, because there's a golden age of pirates that we're unfamiliar with. And I thought it'd be a great way to open today's show. Thank you very much. I, I found that exact experience myself. I've been using pirates as a metaphor in business, inspired partly by that Steve Jobs quote, uh, all through the kind of rebellious stage of liberty. We were putting our two fingers up at the industry that we were trying to disrupt and prove that marketing could be a force for good and uh, that brands should consider young people and their audiences, their responsibility as much as just their opportunity to sell them more stuff they don't really need. So it was always there. And I think you know, we've all kind of got that association, uh, kind of fondness for these romantic rogues. You know, they're a bit comedy if you think of Captain Jack Sparrow. Um, but there's also kind of you know, something deeper, isn't there? Like it's totally um, appropriate for, for a five-year-old to have a pirate-themed uh, party. You know, there aren't any other murderous rogues of history who you'd let your children have a have a party of, would you? Like like a Pablo Escobar party for a five-year-old. <laughs> um, but somehow they hold this place as kind of, rebels with some kind of cause um and that's how i began right i was uh, i was following the advice of ralph waldo emerson that uh, if you can if you if you can understand the thing that scares you most it's probably what you should do next and i was transitioning out of this amazing agency and this grand adventure that i've been on for the last 15 years and and, and was looking to what scared me most and it was definitely writing doing something on my own for one thing i'm not academic no university background i have a bit of chip on my shoulder about that a bit dyslexic and I, and I think I've got this this message for the world, and I think it's something that, that's being missed, and it's about the the revolution and the innovation that's happening at the edges, outside the formal circles, often led by really smart young challengers who are using their naivety to, to come up with solutions where previously people just thought, you know, that, that's, that's not going to work, or the way things are is just the way things have to be. And I really admire the, the, the why not kind of generation, the side hustle generation. And it's not necessarily just an age thing at all. It's a life stage thing. You know, pooling technology, the, 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 the frustration with the age that we live in, those points that you said, you know, sound familiar, right? 300 years ago, exactly the same threat of redundancy, confusing backdrop of ideological conflict, you know, self-interested system, um, you know, establishment that clearly hasn't got our back. And then 300 years ago, pirates, modern day pirates, I thought I had a metaphor and I, I began my adventure uh, on, on that basis and uh, got the book commissioned. Felt like I had a really interesting 
metaphor that was resonant to the times. You know, it was 2016, so peak populism. Brexit's been voted for. Trump is in. You know, where are we heading? Um, and and again, whilst I look to the leadership of the time and. You could, and I think lots of people do feel perhaps a bit pessimistic or certainly uncertain. Uh, I look to the young people that I work with around the world, and, and I'm lucky. I've worked with young entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs as far and wide as Baltimore to townships in South Africa to, to to Athens. You know, the reverse diaspora of young entrepreneurs coming back to those kind of places is, is I think, a place to look for innovation. Um, and then something happened. I began to do my my research, my non-academic approach to research, you know, reading, museums, and obviously Googling, uh, and something emerges. The true story of pirates wasn't just a metaphor. Exactly 300 years ago, a group of 20-somethings, totally frustrated by the opportunities that were afforded to them and the future that they'd been locked out of, took the broken rules and did away with them. And they didn't just fight for the gold and rum like we like we think they did or like we've heard they did. They fundamentally went out to rewrite the rules of society based on fairness, equality, diversity, you know, words that we're really familiar with now, but we're 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 nowhere near the as close as sometimes it seems that they were. And it's not that they were, and I'm not for a second suggesting they were out and out progressives, you know, trying to redesign the 21st century. But they were just trying to create a fairer system for them. So if you've come from a background where it's entirely predatory, stratified, you know, abuse-based, you know, pays appalling, they went out and they, they had completely uh, uh, incredible universal suffrage on boats. Every single person on a boat had a say in the important matters. Uh, they first one of the first times we've ever seen a dual governance system like we're all used to in our in our democratic process and even in business you have an executive and a board or a chief exec and you know you have a, the House of Commons, the House of Parliament, whatever it is. Uh, they had the same thing. They elevated a quartermaster to the same position as a captain. So one in charge of culture, one in charge of strategy. And at any given time, the entire crew could vote the captain out. So there was real participative democracy. And uh, what else? They they had um, uh, tr- you know, some things we haven't even caught up with. They had total transparent pay structures, index linked between the highest and the lowest paid person on board. You know. I mean, really practical, very economic uh, measures that were put into place to make them efficient and efficient at stealing. I'm not shying away from the morality of it, but by God, if they could get that right then, 300 years ago, then you know, there's there's something to be learned, and then there's something to be asked as well. Why has that story been been written out? How come that isn't part of the narrative that we that we hear and understand about pirates? And you dig a bit further, and you look 300 years ago, and it was before the age of, of revolution, right? There's, there are no working uh, workers' rights that we know of, and the, the early working class movements, the levelers that's you know, a few years, generations before, uh, you know, was, was seditious, you know, it was punishable. You know, people who were discussing those kind of issues had to meet in crossroads because, you know, they feared the army, they feared arrest. So it's, it's just as um, enigmatic and exciting that, that pirates are, you know, chasing the Spanish for their gold as it is that they're talking about freedom and equality for workers these were equally you know um, profoundly disturbing ideas to the establishment and their success is the bit that we don't know about their strategic success is the bit we don't know about we we know about the rum and the plunder uh, what we don't know about is the camaraderie the democracy the equality the the care for the injured uh, which they had and they had in spades so a you got to watch out because when something's that powerful uh, that's got to be looked back at B, we're at this, this this time of great disruption again, and and frankly, I'll just be goddamned if if I'm given Uber once again as the the benchmark of innovation to give to these smart young entrepreneurs that I meet. In fact, 
I'm a bit circumspect about the whole of Silicon Valley, really. Um, you know, being the kind of real heroes of the hour, I think there's as much, you know, horseshit behind those unicorns as there are there is anything else. Um, and you know, a large, largely introspective group of low EQ individuals faced on short-term problems is not necessarily where all of our long-term solutions are going to come from. So history is clearly where we've got to look. And as a result of this this journey, I, I would argue, and the book begins by arguing. We should be viewing the golden age of pirates next to the levelers, the suffragettes, the civil rights movement as working class heroes and social revolutionaries. There's a really interesting thing you said there, Sam, which is why were the messages or the underlying goals of pirates vilified or demonized? And, you know, going back to the Steve Jobs quote, I'd rather be a pirate than in the Navy, is a great metaphor you use for. I'd rather go and start a movement with some real positive goals that can make a difference to the world or make a difference to the people within that tribe than actually go and work for an organization that has goals of shareholder value or status quo maintenance. And it's those things I think that are really interesting. Why were they vilified? Because it's that piece that's often overlooked. Yeah, and I think that we're in a we're an interesting time where that's really important. Uh, we all know that the way things are isn't necessarily working out, right? The business model of the latter half of the twentieth century was fundamentally based based on exploitation, by and large. I mean, tell me a business model that wasn't um, either of the individual, of the creative process, or ultimately of the environment. Uh, that's how we've we've built industry and, and capitalism. There's not to, I'm not I'm not anti-capitalist. You know, we we achieved an awful lot. Um, but like like many of the products of capitalism, everything has a best before date, and it may just be the case that it's run out. And and I think that the pirates are vilified because they threaten the establishment. And this is a moment when once again the establishment needs threatening, certainly needs challenging, if if at, at very least questioning. But I don't think questioning is enough in the times that we're in. So then we are talking about rule breakers, and, and rule breakers change in their status through the lens of history and and morality. I took my daughters to Westminster Square um, to see the new statue of Millicent Fawcett on her birthday. And as I looked at her and told them the story and looked around, um, all you see is, is statues who were once rule breakers. And we don't make statues of people who follow their orders. You know, there are very few heroes who became heroes for doing what they're told. But I think like, like great painters, uh, very often their art of rule breakers isn't appreciated in the time. And the challenge is, I don't think we've got the time to wait for our current rule breakers to become heroes and understand what's going on. I think we need to accelerate that process. I think we need to get better and more consistent and more comfortable with the idea of conflict and challenging what's 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 currently going on and really what's currently going wrong. So we may be vilified if we're going to stand up and do what's right, if we're going to explore really new business models that aren't just extensions of the old business model, then we may be vilified for it. But you know, let's call them out. The, um, you know, the, the promise of the great tech revolution, you know, where is it? Um, the, the sharing economy delivered to us by Airbnb and, and, and Uber and the likes. I mean, that's not the sharing economy. That's just uh, an advanced and exploitative capitalism with a new technology bent that actually more people seem to be worse off on the back of. Uh, this is a different way of, of avoiding certain uh, workers' rights and taxation issues. Um so where is the, the, the don't be evil? Where is the shared economy? Where is the principle? It looks very different at the moment. Most of those big tech brands promising a, a degree of tech will save us are actually looking pretty toxic right now. Um, 
so I think it needs to be called out. I think it needs to be challenged because I think there's much better to come. I think we're at early stages of some of these processes of innovation. And yeah, I do think there's some really bright uh, promise there. But if we're not willing to risk being vilified as, as the pirates were, then perhaps we're not willing to push ourselves and risk enough to get to the answers that we need. And we're a danger uh, of the apathy of putting up with something, which is, I mean, I don't mean to be dramatic, but but suicidal. I mean, I would I would go so far as to argue that in a world which is 60% over its biocapacity, any new business, no matter how innovative it calls itself, if it is non-circular, and by that I mean non-sustainable and not using up more products and consuming and consuming more resources and, and 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 upsetting local indigenous communities any business that is still doing that is probably more like a war crime than anything else i mean you can't take the resources that people are surviving with in a world that's run out of resources and i think really consider it anything less so I think the battle lines are being drawn and I think it is upon all of us that we have to consider whether we're part of the problem or part of the solution. And when we're thinking about innovation and what comes next, you know, I think are we part of the problem or are we part of the solution has to be a key question. And, and when I say we, I mean you, dear listener. One of the the big shocks people got when I told them about the book, I, I mentioned it to several people, several confidants, and I, I mentioned about the fact that the alternative to being a pirate was oftentimes people were involuntarily drugged or kidnapped and brought onto the Navy. And their alternative was to work for fair pay as a pirate. I mean, this is, this is how you were viewed at the time. So we've got our lens on it. And, and that was largely informed by uh, media. So there was a very popular book around the time of the golden age called the um, a general history of piracy and notorious robbers. And, uh, sold out multiple, multiple times. It was, it's the more salacious end of it. And then they were all kind of gossip about them. Uh, and then over time, about 80 years later, Treasure Island is published as a book. And then Peter Pan and, you know, all the stories emerged and plank walking and hooks and all this kind of stuff. So there was no planks to be walked. You know, that, that entire aspect of it is just, you know, Hollywood basically and, and, and media. At the time, you are talking about... Um, a very, very different situation. You are talking about working class heroes. You're talking about front page news. You're talking about uh, gossip. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's not dissimilar to think about the likes of, you know, where we are with um, Zuckerberg, Steve, I think I think uh, Blackbeard, a.k.a. Edward Teach, um, was Steve Jobs of the hour. He was the pirate brand archetype. He would set light to fuses at the end of his beard to create the image of piracy that would force others to surrender. And by some historian's measure, uh, he never actually killed a soul. So he's just this really difficult old bugger um, who's really good at brand storytelling. He creates the first pirate brand, you know, the first global brand, 100 and odd years before Coca-Cola, deliberately designed to become a viral meme uh, that furthers and, and advances his you know, profitable business. Uh, so I think, you know, getting a sense of who they were, why they were, why they were gossiped about in the streets, there were shanties about them, they were uh, performed as part of the penny dreadfuls of the time, because they were exactly as you said, where, where the only place around you get f- fair pay, um, you'd have a chance of any kind of equality. And there's this wonderful quote that to me really sums this up. Unlike anything else, it kind of just skewers the argument. There's this guy, Colonel, uh, Colonel Bennett, and he is reporting to the Lords of Trade, which is like the um, the kind of extension of government that's 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 yeah, 
basically exploiting the resources of the world. The, the, the first uh, idea of multinational corporations. Um, and as he's delivering his report, and bear in mind, you know, this is not you know me or someone else that's kind of a bit excited about the romanticism of pirates. This is a, an official voice of government. And this is him giving his report. I fear they will soon multiply, for so many are willing to join with them when taken. The prospect of plunder and ready money, the food and the drink, the camaraderie, the democracy, equality and justice, and the promise of care for the injured. I mean, the idea of pirates as we've been sold them by Johnny Depp dies with that notion, right? The first two lines, yeah, sure, that's what we know about. People wanted to join them, plunder, ready money, food and drink and camaraderie. Okay, the next line democracy, equality, justice, the promise of care for the injured. These things weren't available anywhere else. Yes, if you were in the Navy, you may well have been drug press ganged in there. You may well not be getting paid. You were certainly facing terrible conditions, murderous, bullying captains. And here, the promise of, I'll say it again, uh, equality, justice, fair pay, and care for the injured. So it's a, it's a, proto-democracy and when they took their ideas off uh, the boats and onto land which they did in, in exactly 300 years ago it was a proto-democratic republic where these ideas were being tested out seditious ideas that we now live and still hold up to were first being experimented with before anywhere else on earth where where women people of color people of all classes and backgrounds had ideas like equality justice and, and care for the injured was in a pirate republic in the caribbean it's really interesting. You you mentioned that people of color at the time were slaves. I mean, slavery was rife at the time, but when they came upon these ships and the pirate ships, they were equals and they were paid equally. So it gave them a lease of life that they had nowhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to, to caveat that, there are certainly instances of pirates being involved in slavery. There's no doubt whatsoever. Um, and it's not to pretend that that's not the case, and I don't want to gloss over you know that whatsoever. We're not re not trying to rewrite history. We're trying to un un uncover more truths than we know. So that said, certainly as the golden age of pirates seems to progress, which is broadly sixteen ninety to to, to seventeen thirty, this kind of forty year or so period. Um, more latterly, as the pirate, you know, these ideals really become more established and it begins to feel much more like a clear set of principles. Yeah, routinely, there are lots of examples of, of slaves being freed, you know, and a, and a sense of equality of, of the broadest idea of, you know, subjugated and oppressed and, and working classes. And this seems to be proven by a number of different sources, some that you see um, really uh, like Blackbeard's crews from all the accounts that we've got are very diverse, you know, sometimes 50% diverse, you know, made up crews um oftentimes it's like up to 30 percent there are black captains black caesar one of the most famous of of, of all of them uh, and then yeah absolutely everybody on board had equal say equal voting rights equal pay measures and you know there's a great historian kenneth kinkor who writes about this and he's absolutely unequivocal about it the only place on earth at the time a, a black man would have had this level of equality was on a pirate ship and Again, like I say, this 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 proto democratic experiment um, was being carefully watched. You know, it was an innovation lab in itself, and it was being carefully watched, and it struck fear into the old world um, because the old world, well, had much of it was building its profits on slavery. I mean, disgustingly so. But we were, you know, our, our forefathers are mainly participant in this. But slavery was a you know. A, respectable middle-class investment for families all, all across the um, Britain, Ireland and, and, and other places, and certainly in America. So 
these guys were challenging those notions and those those challenging notions went on and you know they, they found a home fortunately and thankfully you know a hundred years later all across the world but first time like so many of their other principles the first time some of these innovations were being explored was in this you know, remarkable pirate community I, I loved as well when you said they put aside 10 percent of the bounty for injured pirates so they you know, and this ties nicely, and we'll talk about it in a little while, storytelling, because it was not in their interest to fight because they wanted to protect the crews, often much smaller in number than the size of the Navy ships or, the, or often the fleets they fought against. So it wasn't in their interest, but they did pay compensation to injured pirates. It's sophisticated, isn't it? You know, that they've, they've thought this through. And, you know, other subcultures have that. You know, like there's there's some... You know, caveats within the mafia and other kind of groups, but this is this is available for everyone. So the the society, and that's the best word for it, was created. So they put that money aside. There were also opportunities if you were seriously injured, but you wanted to stay within the society. You know, they made provision that you could become cook or other positions that would still be valuable on board, or you could take your pay out and go. Um, but it went further. Like they have a system of uh, same sex uh, marriages, um, uh, civil unions called matilage, you know, recognizing the deep, meaningful bonds take place between um, you know, guys on the crew over many years they might be uh, away. And it's not just to make the celebration, but within some of those clauses, they even had inheritance. You know, they really, really thought this, thought this through. It's an evolved system that they put themselves in a space to be able to go and work that out. And yeah, fundamentally, it comes back down to the economics. There are, you know, on average, about fifteen hundred uh, people within the pirate community facing inordinate odds. Like the Royal British Navy is up to forty-five thousand at some points. The Spanish Armada is pretty big. You know, the the East India Company, huge odds. And so they, they applied these ideas really practically. You know, they're, they're all coming from a background of thievery and murder. So actually, transparent pay makes a lot of sense because it avoids any kind of any, any fight between brisk men. Uh, they didn't have anything to fall back on, and they were all in it up to the same, up to the eyeballs in risk. So, of course, compensation makes sense. Uh, they didn't have the kind of firepower whatsoever to take on the enemy. So let's terrify the hell out of them so we can reduce the fights that we have to go. So, of course, it makes sense. There's an incredible amount of logic, order, uh, strategy and then underneath the narrative which is chaos and and and, and anarchy uh, and that's really the, the thing that keeps surprising me about pirates at their core they are deeply accountable because they are not following rules and this is this is one of the reasons i really advocate rule breaking as a as a 21st century skill uh you know 10 years or so ago we all knew we had to get our digital skills right at the moment i think we're really getting our heads around well-being and mental health awareness is a legitimate 21st century skill necessary and i think the next one is going to be rule breaking this we have to get better at challenging conventions that are no longer fit for purpose but changing them in a way which isn't the old way which is you know begging permission and asking for approval and then waiting till that approval is given and then filtered down watered down no breaking a rule and rewriting that rule is the way the pirate showed us that you can create change once you've rewritten a rule with some peers and they're going to follow you in that new rule, that's a mutiny. And I think a mutiny can be used in a very practical and positive sense. And if you've begun a mutiny, you are become incredibly accountable because it's no longer your your boss, your senior, your lecturer, whoever it is that's been giving the rules. It's now your rule. And it's down to you and your crew to prove that rule can deliver better than what went before. And there are no one else that you're accountable other than those that you can look squarely in the eye. And so this group, had all these practicalities, the things that you just cited, they used them to great effect, and it meant they took on the odds, fundamentally based on deeply practical and accountable 
um, reasons. And I think in this moment that we are in, when we've got a, a kind of crisis of imagination at a leadership level, not all the rules being handed down are, are adding up, then who are we looking to? And I'm, I'm really looking to each of us, all of us. You know, the notion of leadership isn't one that should be handed down to us. It's something that a question we have to ask ourselves. It's such a great analogy, Sam, the pirate analogy, because you pull out the lessons for us and you give us five key fundamental rules that we can follow. You mentioned there's an underlying chaos and it's the same in society today. It's, it's, we're in a, a time of disruption, a time of hyperspeed, and the only thing we control is ourselves, our own actions. And you give us a framework to do that. It'd be great if we could touch on the five methods that you talk about in the book, starting with rebel, where we stand up against the status quo. Absolutely, man. And um, I recognize the, uh, the fraud in advocating rule breaking and then very quickly laying down a framework on top of rule breaking right so i I can see there's an irony there um but what i'm really just trying to do is understand the way that they they brought it about and i think there are consistently these these five stages the first one being rebellion and and just being proud and confident and clear that sometimes breaking the rule is just the right thing to do and the responsible thing to do and positive thing to do and a creative thing to do as uh, Picasso, who says the first great act of any creativity is destruction. And I think for all of us, you know, becoming adult and senior and, and understanding our place in the world to have the confidence to push back every now and then. And, you know, it doesn't have to be breaking the law. It doesn't have to be risking your life. It can be defining a convention that says that we have to get back to, to emails or just participating in badly run meetings. It can be, um, you know, the, the sexism, the prejudice that the, the people around us encounter. It can be standing up to um, you know, whatever it is in your own world and your own self that holds you back. You know, an act of rebellion against the way things are and done daily. And I advocate daily, just as you would, uh, you know, your, your fruit and veg intake or, or your apple a day. I think a, a rule broken every day that just puts you on the edge to do it, but makes you feel just your shoulders go that bit broader when you've done it is a useful exercise because I think, you know, I, well, I think we all think we live in historic times and history suggests pretty clearly, like the statue story at the beginning, that uh, history judges the rule breakers better than it does the, the rule followers. When the time comes, will you be ready to break the rules when it's the right and responsible thing to do? If you were, um, you know, in the States right now, if you were working for the immigration department right now, if you were having to to deliver those policies which are clearly immoral right now, would you follow orders? I'd like to think that I wouldn't. I've got small children. I can see those terrifying, tragic imagery of you know, children crying, being separated from their parents in the country where they don't speak the language. Somebody is pointing at them, moving them around and doing that. Would I follow that order for a job? Would I? Would you? When the time comes to break the rules, when the rules are immoral, when the rules are wrong, when the rules suggest bad things could be coming our way, will you be ready to break the rules? I hope you will be. And I think that practicing rule breaking, I mean it. And I know it sounds can sound a bit, a bit frivolous even or, or counterintuitive, but I want to be ready for that shit. And I want my children to be ready for that. I want to know that we are morally brave enough when things are not right to be able to stand up to it. But then very quickly, the second one is, is about rewriting. And this, this is distinct in the Golden Age of Pirates, like from any other generation of rebels or, or, or troublemakers or anarchists in history, of which there are many, uh, uh, this idea that every rule they broke, they, they proposed a better one. You know, they came in straight away. So this isn't working. How about this? And that's why 
I think you've got this profound period of innovation. And it's, you know, there's not many like it. Perhaps the Second World War, perhaps the turn of the 19th century. You know, you see these really profound, perhaps the beginning of Silicon Valley. I know it's being disdainful earlier on, but you know, at the, the, at the start there, we see so much innovation. Uh, and it's because they were suggesting new ways of doing things. And they're in the edges, outside of the, the order, they were able to create disorder and in there come up with such such new ideas. So replacing bad rules with new ones is the essential part of it. And then gathering people around you is, is how a mutiny is formed. And if that falls apart, then perhaps it wasn't such a good idea. But before you know it, you may well have set a new convention. And uh, my experience, I don't know if you share this or, or anyone listening to, to this shares this, when you really question, why do we why, you know, we do this thing around here? Why, why do we do it like that? And you dig around a bit very often you can't find a good reason other than that is the way things are done. And as you get a bit more senior and you, you, you hold a few positions, you realize one day you've suggested that we do something like that. And a year later, that's become the norm. It's become the convention. It's very rare that the rules that we operate under were really made with our best interests at heart. So rule rewriting becomes the point at which the pirates become accountable. And, and I think then therefore really interesting and something to learn. Next up is this um, notion of reorganization. So these guys were taking on odds far bigger than them, and there was no way they were going to be able to grow to the same kind of scale. And that's become a very old world way, I think, of thinking about it. I think that lives and, and belongs uh, and should die in the 20th century. Scale for scale's sake, this idea that we only judge things on how big they are and as to how good they are. How many employees have you got? How much revenue have you got? These kind of really blunt metrics that bear no relation to success or ideas or value whatsoever. Um, and really, you know, medical terms, scale, uh, like growth for growth's sake is, is, is a form of cancer. And the output of this extreme and aggressive kind of growth-based business has, has left us, you know, in a world with some really tough problems that we need to move back from as quickly as we can. Um, and, you know, those are well, well documented. So the pirates uh, developed what we would now refer to as agile networks. Um, you know, 300 years before the, the buzzwords really existed. Uh, and they could crew up and crew down. The average crew, size of a pirate crew was about 80 strong. Um, but at one point, they massed to more than 2,000. They took on an entire city, a Spanish stronghold, the city of Panama, took it down, went back, crewed down, back into their nimble, agile uh, systems. They had this uh, philosophy that was so strong across them all, the pirate code, that meant they could make decisions based on principles. They had an overarching set of metrics, and, and they, they were judged on their outcomes. You know, it's, it's profoundly fast-moving, dynamic, allows for all the different egos and agendas of the different crews, and yet somehow creates a system within which they can all operate. And I think that's pretty... Um, uh, pretty impressive, and and you know how many large businesses are hosting workshops right now on how to be more entrepreneurial, or how do we be more agile, and they're just words that tumble out of their mouths because they're they're built on an idea of scale. So uh, a more radical approach to reorganisation is another thing that we can learn from from the pirates and how they built these systems that could take on far greater odds and achieve a paradox of scale where the where the smaller guys take on the bigger guys and win is is interesting. And I think it's really easy to. Uh, talk about this in a in 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 a glib way, and and think about rule breaking, and it sound in one sense difficult because we're so hardwired to follow the rules, and in another sense, I think it's really profoundly important. And the you know the example that's very much in my head, I have small children, would be to uh, look to the immigration story in the U.S. at the moment on the on the Mexican border. There are children being separated from their families. And of course, there's a whole miasma of politics that sits around that. But fundamentally, there has something gone really wrong. 
And if I was in that situation, if my orders were to separate children from their parents on their borders, what do you do when the rules conflict with the right thing to do and the right thing to do becomes the wrong thing to do? And will you be ready to break those rules? Would I be ready to break those rules? Could I stand by and tolerate that? Could I be participant in that? History tells us again and again that those who are just following orders are not judged so well by the future. And I think we live in historic times where these kind of questions are going to come to the fore. Uh, I feel deeply concerned about that and concerned for our children about that and you know history has shown us again and again what happens when we sleepwalk into these situations so i think it is truly upon us to practice the art of rule breaking and and conflict and getting comfortable and confident to know when you would stand up for something because there's something about rule breaking when the answer is always in the instinct was this the right rule to break do i feel better for it was i correct in this have i stood up for myself in this and i think that's we've become subjects again to so many bad rules, to so many conventions, to so many disciplines that aren't working. And there's big rules to be broken, and perhaps some small rules will help us get there. The second principle of the, the pirate framework is, is the rewriting of the rules, because there are many anarchists and punks and rogues and rebels in history, but few of them broke the rules and then rewrote them as quickly and effectively as the as the pirates did. And with everything that they challenged, uh, every convention they defied, they suggested an alternative. And that's why they became so popular and so powerful. And I think that's a really important fundamental difference around these guys. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna say there's a, a toxic power structure in the Navy, or if you're gonna say that, you know, being forced to work as indentured laborers is, is outrageous, then of course, you know, putting in policies that would protect people from abuse of power or ensure that everyone gets paid fairly and they're not going there's not going to be you know thievery amongst thieves it's just downright practical and i think it's a really good exercise for all of us you know let's, let's challenge these conventions but let's suggest something better we're not waiting around anymore to be handed down principles that will become outdated rules let's get more dynamic let's get more effective and interesting let's try something new today and then check that it's still right tomorrow you talk about the great picasso quote about every act of creation is first an act of destruction so this is the creative part, and and I I would imagine I was reading that and I was laughing to myself and I was thinking of you with liberty and and your background in advertising that you probably felt this is like that criticism you or you know when you get feedback from a client and it's just like yeah we don't like that and you're going to go yeah but what do you like where can we go with that you know so if you're gonna if you're gonna first stand up to the rules next job is to rewrite them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think it's kind of requisite on the rule breaker to suggest what comes next. And mm-hmm. and I think, you know, that, that Picasso line inspires me greatly. And I think there is, a, I'm not sure if I said this, but I think rule breakers are like great painters and their art just isn't appreciated in the times mm-hmm. that we're in. I, I, it really resonates with me, that that thought. And, you know, it, it seems to be true the more you look to history. It's, it's hard to go out and find, you know, the really strong historical figures that now we view as our heroes that were just doing as they were told um and yet in the hour in the moment we're so hardwired to follow the rules and and obey them no matter what we think uh it becomes deeply uncomfortable and and i think really that's the point but rewriting them and creating mutinies around those of people who are going to share that idea with you that you're going to become accountable to actually feels like a pretty practical and and progressive and positive way of of enacting change Uh, it leads us to the third stage, the, the reorganization um, of things, uh, the 
pirate community was very small. The, the, the odds that they faced were very big. The Royal British Navy, the Spanish Armada, the East India Company, huge odds. And as is the case right now, you know, the biggest players out there feel enormous, you know, far too big to turn around the, the, the broken institutions of government or the great big corporations that we face or the, the tech giants, you know, even our language around them suggests this. And we're totally wedded to these kind of measures scale, um, turnover, number of staff, you know, really old metrics, 20th century metrics, when we still bought into this 20th century business model based, as I said, on on exploitation. Yet the pirates prove the power of scale where the the underdog can can overcome. And actually, I think that's very appealing right now. Um, So many people heading towards enterprise and startup culture, bigger than it's ever been, you know, the idea of the nimble um, uh, network taking on the bigger organization feels very appealing. Actually, the pirates prove that it can be also very effective because they they were really what we'd discuss as like agile networks and systems 300 years before those those buzzwords came about. The average pirate crew was around 80 to 100, uh, yet they were able to take on odds in their thousands um, by crewing up and crewing down. And and almost overnight, uh, there's one story of them taking on and sacking the entire city of Panama, a Spanish stronghold, uh, with 2,000 pirates marching on it, um, drawn from these much smaller cells, and then they dissolve back into the cellular-like structure, but with a set of principles above them that meant everyone knows the the broad direction of decision-making, yet fundamentally they can also return to these, these nimble networks. And how many businesses out there are having brainstorms today about you know, when we need to be more entrepreneurial? How do we think like a startup? And actually, it's a it's a fallacy because when you're just wedded to the idea of growth, you know, growth for growth's sake is a kind of cancer. And so it's no wonder that statistically business is dying out. 1965, average age of a business, average lifespan of a business, sorry, was 70 years. In 2015, it dropped to 15 years. doesn't take much mass to put that forward to, say, another 10 years. And the average lifespan of a business drops to somewhere more like five years. You know, from a biological point of view, that would suggest extinction. It's obviously not going to be extinction. It's just business is going to look very, very different. So this notion of agility and organizational structure is uh, not just historically interesting, but I think probably quite essential essential listening. To, To give context to people, the ratio of Navy to pirates being 30 to 1 pre-war pre-war and then post-war being 10 to 1 but the fact 30 to 1 just shows the scale they beat the navy because of this agility that they had yeah yeah and that's just the british navy they were also up against the spanish armada they were also up against the east india company you know the the the, the dutch navy was the dutch empire was still very very prevalent uh, so they took on extraordinary odds and they did it in the cleverest of ways you know you still you know that that whole area of the world is still littered with um you know, brilliant pirate storytelling. Actually, we'll come back to the brilliant pirate storytelling. But, you know, Mosquito Island doesn't sound like a place that anyone wants to get off their boat. <laughs> but it's because it had a very clever name attached to it by the by the, by the the pirates, you know. Um, which takes us forward to the, to the next stages. So the fourth one is about the redistribution of power. And this is really, really fundamental to the, the differentiation of pirates and, and the pirates that we, under, or we think we understood. So they knew well that they'd been involved in systems which were ultimately exploitative, stratified, and, and, and abusive. And if you're uh, going back to that principle of rewriting rules and you're escaping the Navy where predatory captain behavior or indentured labor or even being drugged and hauled aboard was commonplace, uh, and now you're in a crew with you know deeply untrustworthy 
you know, people with a background of thievery, then it's just entirely practical to build in fairness in a way that we, we rarely see these days. So setting out to sale, you'd establish the pirate code and within there would be these, 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 these principles and they were concurrent across, you know, decades of different codes of universal suffrage of a, a vote that could uh, take a captain out at any moment if the captain was no longer demonstrating the, the kind of confidence or clarity or strategic purpose that the pirates looked up to. Uh, this idea is that we touched on that workplace compensation, transparent pay structures. They'd be designed into the system, A, because you were amongst a bunch of you know rascals and rogues, but B, because it was a deeply practical and surprisingly accountable um set of individuals and the only way they were going to out innovate and out maneuver the 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 enemy was to not have to rely on the the rule book or like you know, like we do now we think we're smart by writing great big values on the walls but i deeply mistrust anyone who has to write honest in in three foot high letters in their office reception you know we, we're so far away from values that become verbs that we can really use to make decisions whereas the pirates had it absolutely locked down these deep systems and principles of fairness united them, held them together, bonded them, and made them so powerful they could take on these these odds. And then the final stage of change that really cements their power is the uh, weaponized storytelling that they that they used. Um, and really, it's the greatest weapon that they had because, as we've discussed, it was not in their interest to take on mass damage. They they had too many compensation practices for that, or too few ships, or too little recourse to go and repair. So how best do you take on these these huge odds? Well, the first stage was the, the pirate brand, the skull and crossbones, you know, which everybody knew. It was carefully designed as a as a meme that was intended to go viral. And of course it was backed up with a very clear message, which was surrender or die, we're coming for you. So there's very sharp um, uh, and scary message behind that. But it was a message that was to drive their business model. It was a message that was in, going to increase their profitability and reduce their susceptibility to increased costs. And they would live this out with the pirate brand. So I mentioned Blackbeard and his dedication to setting light to his beard. But, you know, that whole kind of pirate paraphernalia that we're f- familiar with, the dressing up, you know, the, the fearful skulls. Um, they, they bastardized the international communication language of the hour, which was, of course, the maritime flag system, with these black flags filled with skeletons dancing with cups of blood and swords. So they used the iconography, the imagery, the visual language of the time to denote this terror and fear. And uh, it worked. You know, the, the, the surrender ratio was incredibly high, which then allowed them to drive a pretty successful bottom line. And the, <laughs> the good pirate economists out there, and uh, I'll name check Peter Leeson, particularly amongst them, you know, argues strongly that this is a business model. And actually, um, counter to the practices of the Royal Navy or the East India Company, the pirates would, where possible, use less violence, not more violence, but they would hold up this violent imagery because it, you know, uh, uh, increase the better profit scenario. That's brilliant, and it reminds me a lot of sport. Actually, that you know the the whole idea of the lion's den and you know your home advantage and make people scared to come here. And it reminded me when I was reading it of a Bruce Lee quote: "The art of fighting without fighting." I think it was Enter the Dragon, and this whole thing was his. He learns martial arts never to use it. That's a good point, actually. So this notion of the lion's den, I think, is a really interesting and important one. It was kind of developed by the innovation strategy and creative team at Liberty, 
uh, James and Katie and uh, and Felix. And it's to ask yourself not who is the most receptive audience, as we often do to our storytelling or our brand or our marketing, but who is the least receptive or, or in fact, who is the most provocative audience? Where could things catch fire? You know, and where can this story really accelerate? And that can be scary. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making light of this at all. And I'm, uh, you know, when the pirates did this, uh, it's absolutely critical to acknowledge that there were some psychopaths amongst them. There was some, you know, really dark deeds that were done. But once that message is out there and there's a, there's a scary story to be told, then not to shy away from it. And that's what the pirates do so well. They they show us that yes, in the shadows. We talk about fear, but in the shadows and in the dark, you can also find freedom and liberation and actually innovation. So in all of our storytelling, we should be very confident to go and look to the darker spaces as well, because we can't be scared. Can't be scared of those scary stories. So Sam, you give us the five points that we can take and we use as a framework, but then you also talk about us having a code, but that code starting with us, starting with ourselves, an individual code that we must be accountable to. So the, the pirate code really is how all this stuff comes together. It's, it's referred to sometimes in the big films as um, you know, like guidelines. It wasn't guidelines at all. It was life and death. It was the, it was the law. Um, and they were clearly written down, written in blood, nailed to the mast. I mean, possibly not that dramatic, but I like to think of it as such. Um, and you know, really interestingly, a new pirate code was established for a new mission um, so that you'd set out and you weren't run by the rules that were made up a year ago or even 18 months ago or whatever. It was it was completely relevant to the time. And it's really interesting reading the pirate codes because there are some big principles that seem to exist across them all. These, these things we've touched on like fair pay and uh, workers' compensation and everyone having an equal vote. But there are some that are really individualistic um, and that they re- must relate to the previous mission or, or the last experience they had and what they learned. And there's some pretty, you know, um, out there ones. There's there's one I love, which is um, that the prisoners must be locked up before we get drunk, you know, which suggests that on the on the last outing, you know, they captured some prisoners and got smashed and the prisoners had escaped. So, you know, at least they were learning and there's a, there's a new lesson to them that they put into practice. And there's others you know, um, that are particularly romantic uh, about the band, the band they had on board and the, the band would be given Sundays off. Um, but to think that, you know, you're a crazy pirate captain with your big crew going out to take the world, your dedication to storytelling is such that you've got a band on board. Amazing. <laughs> so they were these big principles, and we've, we've kind of discussed those and why those can be really useful, but they were these individualistic principles. You know, this 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 book, this argument I'm making is, is, is yes, absolutely, to, to give us the part of their history that we've lost that could be useful to us, but it's not to suggest that they were... You know, well-meant libertarians trying to redesign the future. That's that's not the case. They were they were fighting for equality for themselves. You know, there's a degree of selfishness to this equality, and I'm not trying to gloss over that one. And actually, I'm trying to draw from it because deep down, this message of be more pirate, I think, is really to to be more you, to find the rebel in all of us, to find the reason why pirates appeal to all of us, to find the confidence in which we can stand up and challenge that which we know is flawed or wrong, and that we are willing to embark on a bit of adventure because that's what comes next you know the only certainty is uncertainty the only thing that we know that we can't do is carry on doing the way things have been done and we have to accept that together no one has a master plan there is no grand strategy made up by wise and fortuitous people uh, that have got our back that just isn't there so if no one's coming to save us who do you look to we are we idealize leaders as some kind of medal or thing that you win and and the truth of leadership is that it's something that happens inside you it's how you decide to show up today and tomorrow 
fundamentally in your life with what you're doing. And that's the only leadership you need to worry about and the only leadership really that we need because from the top, it ain't coming. You know, there is a vacuum of imagination, a crisis of imagination at a leadership level in the world today. And there is no shortage of inspiration and innovation happening at the edges. So let's, let's push in that direction. And like the pirates did, kicking at the edges creates waves and ideas that others can adopt. And over time, they're absorbed into the fabric of culture and, and over time again into policy. So these seditious, uh, illegal ideas of, 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 of the pirates of the golden age became the law, became culture, became policy. And some of them even become inalienable human rights. So it can work. We don't have to wait for permission. We have to create change. And there's a little bit of a time warp with that, but it does happen. And you talk about this, that we need to shift from being reactive consumers to proactive citizens, and we need to make a difference. And I thought a great way to finish and to inspire would be the brilliant C.S. Lewis quote that you have in the book, Sam. Well, I really believe in this. And, and you know, it's one thing to look out to the troubles that the world faces and that we face and and to then... You know, do something about it. It's tough, you know, and I and I I rec- recognise that. I feel that myself. It's daunting. It's difficult. Uh, it's dangerous. So, how on earth am I, as an individual, supposed to create any kind of change? Well, it just begins with small acts. It begins with small groups. It begins with small conversations. Everything in the world does because all things compound. Good compounds just as bad as bad compounds. Like like it, we all know that money compounds and works against us typically if we're trying to get a mortgage. Um, but it works the other way round. It really does. Einstein declared the, that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. You know, Benjamin Franklin knew this when he invested $5,000 for the city of uh, Boston that you know, 200 years later was a 20 million surplus for them. And C.S. Lewis knew it brilliantly. And he says, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions that you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which, a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories that you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack that was also otherwise impossible. The small acts we do today can become big acts tomorrow. Fact of life, fact of history, fact of your life, fact of your future. Brilliant, Sam. And where can people find out more about you, about Liberty, about Be More Pirate? Um, all very easy to find. Uh, BeMorePirate.com or at BeMorePirate. There's a really great community on Instagram uh, around it. And similarly, I'm just Sam Conniff um, on all of my all of my feeds and, and everywhere else. And, and the wonderful Liberty is the only Liberty in the world. L-I-V-I-T-Y. I'm still going strong at Liberty UK um, and Liberty.co.uk. Award-winning social entrepreneur, co-founder and former CEO of Liberty and author of Be More Pirate, Sam Conniff. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone who's listening.